Well, uh, Tim LaHaye. Wow. You know, he looks better now than he did a year ago. It's amazing. Um, I'm going to ask him to come up here because all of you are interested in his books. I know you're interested in his books. <laughs> Last year, uh, his son-in-law Murph was back there working so hard. He had just a few books left on Sunday morning. And uh, I said, wow, you just is that all you got left? He said, yep. And, and you guys cleaned those out. They left here without a single book. So they brought tons of them now. <laughs> you know, I, I started counting some of them and I just gave up. Tim, come up here and tell us what you got. I, I think you have a new one again, right? There's a new one coming. Tell us a little bit about the books of Tim LaHaye. Ah, that's my book. Oh, my <laughs> in a sense, I'm speaking on that tomorrow morning. Uh, Ooh. Forget that. It's a, can Israel be saved? And we'll get into that. Uh, it's an exciting subject. I, I want to tell you, by the way, I hate to correct you. Yes. But I was not here a year ago. It was two years ago. Two years ago, right. I Time mean, passes when you're having fun. That's right. It's wonderful to be back in an atmosphere where folks love the prophetic word of God. Amen. See, God, in his marvelous grace, has communicated his message to mankind. And everything we need to know, even in this day and age, can be found in the word of God. That's right. And he illuminates, he doesn't give the same inspiration to us that he gave to the apostles. They, they were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke as God gave them utterance. And that's what we have in the Bible. Now we can come along and, and help make it practical because that's our life study and so on. But uh, that's what we want to do here. Tie together some of the prophetic teachings in the Word. And uh, I'm going to share with you two messages tomorrow. Can't wait to give them because they're so important. But Israel you know that Israel is the super sign that Jesus is coming. Amen. Now, he said he would come back and he would give us signs and those signs culminate in the super sign. We'll talk about that tomorrow. In the mess, I'm going to show you how minuscule Israel is in comparison to their surrounding neighbors tomorrow. And then I want to talk to you about uh, Russia and God's plan for the future, the chaos that this world is facing cannot be understood by today's politicians unless they know Jesus Christ and believe the Word of God. Amen. Because God gives us the secret that will unfold. But also on a practical level, I, like, I believe the Bible should be a practical book that helps us to live. And why the second coming has been a pulsating thing with me. Many people have asked me, you've been in the ministry now for 66 years. Uh, how come you've emphasized the second coming of Jesus? And I started out at quote, spirit-controlled temperament. Some of you have read that. And uh, it, was, it launched a, a family ministry for helping people in marriage. And I did that. But when I turned mid-80s, um, I don't tell how old I am, but 
uh, I decided that people didn't want to hear about children and great-grandchildren. In fact, I'm not sure I want to be around too much. <laughs> but I, I decided that my main passion was the second coming of Jesus. Can I tell you how it happened? My father accepted Jesus when I was four years old. He was Roman Catholic. My mother was nothing. And they were both saved the same night without realizing that the other had come forward. My dad was a, had a beautiful voice. I didn't obviously inherit it. Uh, he had an Irish tenor voice. And I have a baritone voice. The barest tone you ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> my father died of a heart attack, massive heart attack at 34 years of age. And just a few years ago, I had almost ready, it was in April, and my birthday's in April, and I was ready to turn 10 years old. I thought my life was over. My dad was a gregarious guy, he's lovable, people loved him, and he loved people. And uh, I, I didn't even want to go to his funeral. I felt so bad. My world had come to a screeching end, you can imagine. I cried so much. I teared right up. And I told my mother I, I didn't want to go to the funeral. She, my mother was a flair, known calling, dedicated Christian that uh, later, it's a long story, but she said, you will go to the funeral. <laughs> and even though I was almost as tall as she was, and she was a very smart woman, um, I went to the funeral. And I'm so glad I did. Because the the minister that had led my parents to Jesus, I will never forget, Dave. He put his hand on the casket. Remember that solemn moment. And he said, this is not the last of Frank LaHaye. The day is coming when he will shout from heaven and the dead in Christ will be raised first. And when he did that, he pointed, and now I'm from Michigan. That's where I get this weird accent. I was just back there last Sunday preaching, and it was neat to be back in my home territory. And again, it's overcast. It's always overcast in Michigan. <laughs> anyway, when he pointed up toward heaven, he said, the day is coming when Jesus is going to come and take us to be with him, because he promised, I go to prepare a place for you, and I'll come again and receive you myself. And where I am, there you may be also. And as he did that, can you believe the sun broke through a little round hole in the overcast and pierced into my heart? And I realized this is not the end. The blessed hope we have Amen. is the kind of Jesus. And folks, I gotta tell you, that confident that's what it means. It's the confident expectation that we know he's coming again. That has burned in my heart ever since. And Lord willing, I want to share some of that with you tomorrow because he's coming and I don't think it's going to be too far. Now don't run away. Yes, you haven't said one thing about a book. <laughs> you have a new book out. What is it? Oh, I've got about four new books. In four there. new books. <laughs> I, we didn't bring the fiction books along, but uh, see, I, I use fiction because I also have a passion to lead people to Jesus. Amen. And every fiction book that you see my name on 
you know it's going to be based on Bible prophecy. Yeah. And then I worked a fictional story. And I'll tell you a trade secret. Every book has what I call a believable conversion that can be imitated by the reader. And literally thousands of people have come to Have come to know the Lord. Hey, you're going to do a movie. I'm working The sequel. Do you want people to pray about it? If you've got room on your prayer list, pray about the sequel to the Passion of the Christ called The Resurrection of the Christ. And we're very close to putting the whole deal together. And I'm hoping that by pre-Easter of 14, it will be out. And that it will lead tens of thousands of Praise people. Praise the Lord. You never stop, do you? Hey, why don't you pray about that right now? Amen. Let's do it. Father, I thank you for this man. You have used him so greatly. Thousands have come to know you because you have inspired him. You have controlled by your Holy Spirit his heart, his writing. And Lord, we want to praise you and thank you. We pray about this movie on the resurrection. Lord, it's a big project. We want it to be quality and good and one that will touch the hearts of a non-believing world that's turned their back on you. God bless him, encourage him, and uh, I pray, Lord, that we might buy all his books. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, I got to tell you, he is a big blessing, isn't he? Hard to get much bigger, but he's been a great inspiration to me, and I'm sure to you. And I thank God for your for letting God do whatever he wanted with your life. That's the key to success in the Christian life. Say, Lord, mm-hmm. here it is. Whatever you want yeah. to do, I want to be your person. And Amen. David's been that kind of person. And by the way, I will tell you about the books. Are just You don't want to go home without them. Anyway, <laughs> well, I, I will if you are not able to come tomorrow and you'd like a, an autographed book. There you go. I'll uh, autograph them. Our, our mutual friend Ken Poor says that makes him worth 16 cents more. <laughs> wow. Let's give him a hand. Dr. Tim Hey, He'll be on tomorrow. Praise God. Wow. Well, uh, we're trying to tell you a little bit about what we have. And uh, let me just uh, uh, quickly tell you. This little booklet called Replacement Theology... I wrote it, but I consider it to be the finest thing ever written on the subject. First of all, you can understand it. Secondly, the leading guy who does not like my view called me the most dangerous man in America because I wrote the book. You know what? I wrote him a thank you letter and said, I want to thank you for your criticisms. Ever since you've done that, the book has been selling like hotcakes. So keep it up. But if you don't have this or you don't know about it, 90% of all the churches in North America believe this replacement theology. I believe it's from the pit of hell itself. Satan has energized it, the father of lies. You need to understand that. So that's back there. Many people ask me about Jewish people. How do you witness to them? And I know it's not easy. Uh, Jews as well as Muslims love to argue. And uh, a lot of Gentile Christians especially are not used to arguing. And uh, we even say, I don't want to argue, you know. But actually, if you don't know how to argue, then 
you probably will never win a Jew or a Muslim to the Lord. You've got to learn how to argue with people without getting mad. That's not easy. Because they say things that make you mad. So, uh, sometimes a book helps. And I wrote this little booklet for my Jewish friends, sent it to the rabbis that I know, and asked them what they thought about it. It's called, Who is the Messiah? And when you meet a Jewish person you want to talk to, open it up with, Hey, I heard this wacko guy preach the other night, and he wrote this little booklet. Would you read it for me and tell me what's wrong with it? Oh, Jews love that. (laughs) Don't tell them what you believe. You ask them questions. Like when I came in tonight, I said to several of you, Well, how are you? I knew you were Gentiles immediately. You said, fine. My Jewish friends don't do that. When I say, how are you? They say, why do you ask? (laughs) Anyway, um, that's back there. Uh, Also, if you don't get our monthly newsletter, there are samples back there. Just fill the little insert on. It comes free to your home. I should also tell you about one more thing you can get free every week. Is an e-letter I write called HFT Connect. How many of you already get it? Oh, praise the Lord. Well, it's a little more controversial. And uh, we're going to pull the rug out from the Muslim Brotherhood and their influence in our nation right now. Fifty-seven of them are somehow in our government. Uh, The top woman of the Muslim Brotherhood in the world is the right-hand gal to Hillary Clinton. We need to understand, they have already predicted that by 2025, America will be a completely Muslim nation. People have questioned that, and they see these facts. We try to get facts uh, that are documented. The one that's this week, Sunday night. Now you can go home, go on the website to davidhawking.org, click on HFT Connect, and just put in your email. That's all you have to do. And you'll get Sunday nights. Sunday nights has the most fascinating story of what's happening to Italy that you could ever possibly read. Italy is supposedly the country of the Vatican and the Roman Catholics. It will be Muslim within one or two years. You need to understand what's going on. The murders of women is unbelievable in Italy. In the Muslim home. You, you really need to read it. It's coming here to America. Watch out. Looks like Belgium is going to turn to the Muslim religion. They already have a dominant voting bloc. Uh, looks like France is going to fall also within five years. We need to understand what's happening in our world. In the book called The God of the Bible, if you've got a nice neighbor who's an absolute atheist and hates God and hates Jesus and whatever. Get in the book, The God of the Bible. Opening line, the God of the Bible is not Allah of the Islamic religion. He's not the Big Bang in evolutionary thinking. He's not the man upstairs. He's not the divine principle. He's not merely the emotion of love, although he's indeed the epitome of what love is and how it operates. He is not simply a vapor or a ghost or an idea or merely the principle of life. We have a whole book telling people who the real God really is. And uh, we need to know that today more than ever before. 
my favorite book in the New Testament, I guess I would say that, although I'm writing a commentary on Romans now, but uh, is the book of Hebrews. Hebrews gives us the Jewish roots of our faith. It gives us understanding that we wouldn't get anywhere else. It quotes voluminously from the Old Testament. And uh, the book called The Messiah of Israel, it's a treasure for me. Tibbs already mentioned Israel chosen by God. I had rabbis look at this one. They said it was outstanding except for the last page. Well, what's in the last page? Have you personally confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Well, I understand now. Okay. And one rabbi told me he could not believe the information I put in this little book called Jerusalem. Biblical Roots, History, and Future. He said, there's more in this little book than we have in volumes of our books. Well... Jerusalem is the eternal capital of Israel. I don't care what our president says or our Congress. Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. By the way, that's why God is blessing Canada right now. Because Mr. Stephen Harper, the Prime Minister, is very pro-Israel. And I have already read what he said to our president at the G8 and the G20 conferences when Obama had his microphone on and didn't know it. And the whole world heard Obama tell uh, 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 Stephen Harper, he said to him, Stephen, you have vetoed every single sanction we tried to bring against Israel. He said, and I'll continue to do so as long as I'm prime minister. He said, well, you're the biggest hindrance to world peace. He said, I don't think so, Obama. I think what you need to do is go back and read your Bible. It's filled with stuff about Israel. It'll really help you. And he got mad and swore and walked away and it was all recorded. But most of the people voting next Tuesday don't have the foggiest idea what they're doing. It's really tragic. Well... We need to go to the Bible to find out what's going on. Amen? Amen? Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 24. Our issue is, are the days of Noah back again? I want to preface my remarks by saying, Matthew 24 and 25 are controversial. Uh, Bible teachers do not agree about the nature of these statements of our Lord and when they take place. Actually, replacement theology was born out of the Olivet Discourse. And I will point it out before we're done. There is also the trouble of predicting whether or not the rapture is in the teaching and the mind of our Lord. I'm going to try to teach you what I believe this wonderful message of our Lord actually says. Yet at the same time, being cautious and careful and saying, don't just grab your pastor by the throat and throw him against the wall if he disagrees, but instead find out why. We need to understand this prophecy message probably more than any other. Tim LaHaye mentioned to me earlier tonight that it's one of the three major prophecies of the Bible that we must understand. 
Matthew 24, I'm beginning at verse 36 down to verse 44. Oh, by the way, I'm doing a series right now, teaching it at Ocean Hills Community Church in San Juan Capistrano on the great prophecies of the Bible every Wednesday night, and it is web-streamed. You can watch it on your internet, 7 o'clock Wednesday nights. Go to Ocean Hills Community Church, just Google it, and their website. I'm also on internet television on Tuesday night. This Tuesday night, at 6 o'clock, I'm on live. And they have me trying to bring some uh, sense into the election and the political process and what the Bible actually says. They're going to stream that to many Southern California churches as we talk about religion and politics. That's at 6 o'clock. At 7 o'clock, I teach the book of Genesis for an hour. It's also rebroadcast on Saturdays at noon. We're currently running around 280,000 people on Tuesday night in 150 countries of the world. We're hearing from Muslims all over the world. Had the joy of leading a Pakistani Muslim to the Lord just recently. The fact is, the world is changing rapidly. But our God is not done. Our God is in charge. Our God knows how it's all going to turn out. And he knows who's going to be elected next Tuesday night. He knows it better than all the polls that have been taken. And all the criticisms that have been given. People say, well, I'm not voting for a Mormon. Well, what you have in the other guy is worse. If it's two evils to you, you vote for the lesser one. But I need to tell you that Mr. Romney questions and has uh, several times now the teaching of the Mormons. You say, what does he question? Uh, he questions whether Salt Lake City is the new Jerusalem. He said, if you read Revelation 21 and 22, it couldn't possibly be. They've already called him into question. But they're not going to do anything. Obviously, he may be president. And number two, he said, Jesus is not the brother of Satan. I disagree with our denomination's view on that. Well, I don't know what he believes, but I'm praying he'll really be born again. I'm also praying for the other guy. You know, our president. He's still our president. And I pray every day that he'll be born again. What do you think? Amen. It's not too hard for God. He's got the king's heart in his hand. He can turn it however he wants. Amen? Amen? Good. Don't tell me afterwards who you're voting for. I don't care. All right? I've already voted. My mind's made up. For years, I put the same candidate down. Because in California, you can write in your presidential candidate. And I've been writing it in since I was 18 years old. Oh, did you want to know who I... <laughs> I wrote in the name, Jesus Christ, my Lord. People say to me all the time, including the guy in my neighborhood, who's the head of the Republican uh, Party in Orange County. He said, David, you won't have any influence doing that. I said, oh, I don't know. I said a month ago, or no, it's longer than that now, a month before the uh, convention, the Republican convention in Florida, I got a call from the Republican Party nationally. 
they asked me to head up the delegation from California. Now, why would they do that when they know I'm wacko on who's president? <laughs> and I told them, you want to know what I told them? Oh, okay. Somebody did ask one. Anyway, um, I told them I didn't want to step down to run the delegation at the Republican Party. God called me to teach and preach the Word of God. Amen? All right. Matthew 24, here we go. But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark. And knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Then shall two be in the field. The one shall be taken and the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill. The one shall be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord doth come. But know this, that if the goodman of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore, be ye also ready. For in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man cometh. Will you join me in a moment of prayer? Lord, we need your help, the help of your Holy Spirit, the true author of the Bible. Help us, Lord, to know and trust that that Spirit of God can lead us through the Word of God to the truth of God that will set us free. Lord, I don't know the hearts of people who are listening, but you do. We can't fool you. You know even the church people that aren't really born again. You know how many of us talk a good line, but our hearts are far from God. And I pray, Lord, you'll bring us back to the seriousness of the Word of God, that in an hour when we think not, the Son of Man will come. Thank you, Lord, for what you're going to do. In the blessed name of our Lord Yeshua, we pray. Amen. Noah is quite a subject in the Bible, mentioned 54 times. I'm going to walk through this passage uh, slowly, hopefully, and to take time with it because it is controversial, very, as to what it means. Almost every point is. Let's start with point number one, the impossibility, put it up there, the impossibility of knowing when Yeshua will return. Yeshua, his Hebrew name abbreviated from Yehoshua, or Jesus. By the way, we sang, uh, there's no one like Jehovah. Uh, we got to change that. Uh, Jehovah's a Latin word, and it's not especially honoring to our Lord by Jewish people. We got we to learn how to change it. Um, Jews don't even pronounce the tetragrammaton, the four letters that speak of God's holy name. They call him Hashem, meaning the name. 
if I was greeting you in a Jewish synagogue, I'd say, Baruch Hashem, Adonai Elohim Israel. Uh, blessed be the name of the Lord God of Israel. If I'm among believers, I would say, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. The point that I'm emphasizing here is that it was in verse 36 that he said, No man knows the day or the hour. And we have plenty of people in North America who say, but he didn't say the month and the year. Now, anytime you hear that on television or radio, it's going out there quite often these days. Not just the man who owns family radio. There are more people than him. But the fact is, you know right away they are Gentiles, not Jews. It's a Jewish idiom. When it says you don't know the day nor the hour, it means you don't know anything. You don't know the month, the year, or the minute, or the hour. You don't know anything. And we need to begin our discussion of this passage with the fact that our Lord told us it is impossible for any one of us to know when our Lord is going to return. I heard no amens and God is in charge. He could easily zap you in your seat because you didn't say anything. Why are you silent? Did not our Lord say, it is impossible for any one of us to know? Amen. Okay, you're getting healed. <laughs> Mark thirteen thirty two is about the same. It says, of that day and that hour knoweth no man, know that the angels will turn heaven, neither the Son, S-O-N, but the Father. Does Jesus know it now? Of course. Did he know it after his prophecy message? Yes, at some time he did, because he knew it quite well after his resurrection. A lot of things that Jesus did when he was here was because of what Philippians 2 says. He emptied himself, took on the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient even to the death of a cross. But God has highly exalted him, given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and every tongue should confess that he's Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wow. Right away, we have an illustration of his coming. Let's put it up there. Just three verses, but my, what controversies they have produced. Now, if you have a pencil and you want to write down something that I think will be helpful to you, is I'm going to tell you the major illustrations that are used in the Bible of the coming of the Lord in the tribulation period. What are they? Number one would be Noah and the flood. The flood is equal to the tribulation period. Some say, well, that's a seven-year period according to Revelation. I believe that's true. The great tribulation might be the last three and a half years. The time of Jacob's trouble, definitely the last three and a half years. But the whole seven-year period is the tribulation that's coming, also called the day of the Lord, the day of God's vengeance. I'll talk about that tomorrow morning. 
The fact is, that day is coming, and I'm going to show you why I believe it's near. So it's Noah and the flood. Number two, the parable of the trees. Now, all that is, that people say, well, that's a fig tree referring to Israel. No. No, the Bible says in Luke, uh, not only the fig tree, but all the trees. That when they have leaves, you know summer is near. In this illustration, the summer is the tribulation. Now, notice in both cases, there are things that precede it. Uh, there's 120 years at the time of Noah that precedes the coming of the flood. At the time of the illustration of the trees, uh, there are months that precede when the leaves are coming back on the trees. You know that summer, representing the tribulation and the argument, is near. The primary illustration, however, is a woman travailing in pain in childbirth. It's used by the Old Testament Hebrew prophets. It's also used in the New Testament, even by the Apostle Paul in a key passage like 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He said, you, you know perfectly well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And in the verse 3 of 1 Thessalonians 5, he speaks of it being a woman travailing in pain. The baby that comes out of her womb is the tribulation period. That's obvious in every usage of that illustration. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 8, after Jesus said, in answer to the questions of the disciples, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? It's one question. There were two questions that day. The first was, when will these things be dealing with the destruction of the temple? The second question, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? He then pointed out, take heed that no man deceive you. It's a problem of deception. He also said, there'll be wars and rumors of wars, but see that you be not troubled, the end is not yet. There'll be famines and earthquakes in various places, diverse places. The point of that is, they'll be happening in areas that aren't known to be earthquake prone. There'll be famines also. We now have more famine on the surface of the earth than we had when we had that big African aid, remember that, a few years ago? most of which was still on the docks of Somalia. We got a problem, because Jesus said at the end of that, all these that he just mentioned are the beginning of sorrows. Well, the word is referring to birth pangs. It's once again the common, normal Jewish illustration of the coming of the Son of Man in the tribulation period. So it's a woman travailing in pain. Those three illustrations are the primary illustrations dealing with the coming of the Lord and the tribulation period. Now in this case we're talking about Noah and the flood. I'll say more about those illustrations tomorrow morning. They're in three verses. As the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, unto the day that Noah entered into the ark, and knew not 
until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. I like what one writer said who was doing a commentary on this. He said, nobody really believes it. He went on to explain why. We hear it, and we want it to be preached, but we don't really believe it. And the problem comes over how we interpret what was going on in the days of Noah. I just heard it on the radio this week. It's all the time, folks. A wonderful man, good Bible teacher, and he said, life was normal, nobody would expect it, therefore the tribulation is going to come as a surprise. Well, the tribulation is going to be a surprise. Jesus said that. But what he said about the times of Noah is incorrect. Isn't it amazing how little we go to the Bible for our answers? But we just read marrying, giving, and marriage and all of that. We think that's life as normal. No, it's not. Before I get to that, let me show you what's being illustrated by this little illustration the Lord gave us of Noah and the flood. Number one, it illustrates, the back up, the patience of God. 1 Peter 3, 20 and 21 says, Which sometimes were disobedient, talking about that generation, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was of preparing, wherein few, that is eight souls, Noah, his three sons, their four wives, were saved by water. The like figure, the Greek word is antitype. Ante means against a type. No, it's a strong type, all right. But ante means, in Greek, in the stead of type. In other words, instead of the flood water, we actually have baptism. Wow. What does that mean? Well, everything in the flood water died. And everybody who's truly baptized, as the Bible said, is baptized in the likeness of his death. Kiss the old life goodbye. Baptism has become a rather meaningless ritual, I'm afraid, in many circles, and we forget what the Bible teaches about it. The like figure, the antitype, wherein to even baptism doth also now save us. You say, there, see, baptism, water baptism will save you. No, it won't. Well, it says that, you didn't keep reading. In the parenthesis following it, it says, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer, that's our Greek word apologetic, the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what you have is an illustration of the patience of God. How long did it last? 120 years, according to the Bible. Wow. What else does it illustrate? It illustrates the problem of not being ready. Verse 39 says, They knew not until the flood came. First of all, they'd never seen a flood. God watered the ground with a mist. 
They'd never seen the collapse of the heavenly skies that poured out rain. You say, well, if all the rain clouds would pour out their rain on the earth, it would only be about two inches, according to scientists. I used to debate this on the California University campuses. We need to go back and do it again. They're still teaching the same dumb things. I went back to find out. They're still teaching the same dumb things to our kids and our grandkids. The Bible does not say the flood was caused by 40 days of rain. Stop accusing the Bible of that which it does not say. No, the Bible said the way that happened was the fountains of the deeps, of the depths, the deep, were broken up. In other words, there were volcanic eruptions or earthquakes in the oceanic caverns causing enormous amounts of water to go over the surface. What you have a tsunami, like in Indonesia, a huge island, fourth largest Muslim nation in the world, moved 21 feet. And hardly anybody paid attention to it. I remind you that was a warning from God because every island will move out of its place. That's what God says. And every mountain will be made low. Everything's going to change. And all the cities of all the nations of the world will fall and collapse under the greatest earthquake the world has ever seen. Have a nice night of sleep tonight. Please understand, I'm not here to entertain you. I'm here to shoot straight what the Bible actually says. We're going through a difficult passage. Not everybody agrees. I understand that. Because, you see, it not only illustrates the problem of not being ready, and as you know, in verse 42 and 44, that's exactly what the Lord said. Therefore, be you also ready. That was the point of the whole thing. The generation before the flood came were not ready. Instead, according to the Bible, they mocked Noah. They'd never seen rain. And he's talking about rain falling and there's going to be a flood. And they're laughing at him for building this big boat. Are you still with me? There's a third thing it illustrates. It illustrates the pattern of life that will characterize people at this time. And here is where we have major disagreements. I had a prophecy teacher call me and say, David, I heard what you said on this at a meeting. I think you're all wet. And I said, well, what's your view? This was just normal life. I said, no, you're wrong. If you have your Bible there, we were talking on the phone, turn to Genesis chapter 6. I want all of you to turn there. Genesis chapter 6. What exactly was going on at the time of Noah and the flood. This is where we are confused. We're not reading the Bible correctly. It wasn't life that is normal and therefore a big surprise flood. The flood was a big surprise, all right. But that is not the point. God brought the judgment of the flood because of what was happening on planet Earth. What was happening on planet Earth? Do you have your Bible open? Genesis. Oh, by the way, if you want to know about my teaching on this and all the ramifications of it, 
uh, and what we did in the universities of California years ago, the book called The Beginning, it's on the back table, has all that information in it. Uh, were the creation days 24 hours or were they long days? All the views are given. The sons of God in Genesis 6, who are they and what are the views? There's several views. I just urge you to get it and to know what you're talking about before you start arguing with somebody. Now let's read carefully. You watch your Bible. Try to look on with somebody. Genesis 6.1 And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them. What are we talking about here? Put it up here. Here are four things that you're going to learn. There was population explosion when men began to multiply on the face of the earth. There was also moral deterioration, as we shall read in a moment, and widespread violence and demonic infiltration. So let's keep reading. Population explosion. Men began to multiply in the face of the earth. Well, how big was it? The number of years, you want to take your pencil or your pen and write it down in your notes so you can check me out later. They search the scriptures daily to see whether those things are so. The total amount of years from Adam to when the flood came was 1,656 years. Now, we're also told that they lived a long time. The average was 905 years in the first listing of genealogies. There's probably a lot of reasons for that that relate to the flood and all of that, but I'm not a scientist or a knowledgeable one in that field. I'm simply going to tell you what the Bible says. How much was the multiplication? So I'm going to take the safest route here. The safest route is to notice, especially in the genealogy of Genesis 5 as well as 10, that each generation begat sons, plural, and daughters, plural, four. Has to be at least two. I'm sure it's a lot more than that. Why? Because the genealogies and chronicles indicate there were a lot more children than just four. But let's just take four of every generation. We already know from the Bible when they had their first child. The Bible tells us how old they were. Then on the basis of that and walking through the 1,656 years with each generation having at least four children, how many people are on the planet? The answer is between 8 and 16 billion people. I don't know what you know about this, but that's more than what we got on the planet now. I was debating at the University of Santa Barbara an evolutionist who was a Jew, and in my book that's an oxymoron. But anyway, uh, I was debating him. He's an atheist, another oxymoron. But uh, he, he was really upset over this. And he said... What proof is there of your view of the flood? I said, you know, I have a little Jewish blood too, and so do you. So Jews love to answer questions by asking another one. I said, let me ask you one. In all the discovery of human bones and giant animal bones, 
where are they found? He said, oh, well, that's easy. In the upper levels of stratification, paleontology. I said, wow, imagine that. As a matter of fact, let's go down the strata, and will you please tell the audience where we find human bones and giant animal bones in the lower echelons of paleontology? He said, well, you know just as, soon, just as sure as I do that we don't have any of that. Oh, we don't. Well, you think it was a local flood. He said, absolutely. I said, have you ever been to the mountains of Ararat? He said, no. I said, I have. You have? Yeah, I've even seen him from Tehran. I was in Iran. Arrested there, by the way. Anyway, I was in Iran, and I saw the backside of that huge air rat mountain range. I said, you know how high it goes? No, how high? Between seventeen and 18,000 feet high. He said, well, that'd be hard to have a local flood. <laughs> right. Yes, it certainly would be. Plus the fact you're telling God he's a liar. God said he would never judge the world again with a flood like that. We've had plenty of floods in human histories that have caused damage and loss of life everywhere, including the one we just saw last week. They were all local floods. We have not had a global deluge since Noah. Well, why do we have all these human bones? I said, let me ask you another question. Of all these human bones in the upper stratification, are there just a few scattered hundreds of miles from each other? He said, well, you know the answer to that. No, you tell the people. Uh, no, they're not scattered and they're not far away from each other and Yes, there's human bones like in every foot. Oh, we have human bones all over in the upper strata. Yes, that's correct. Uh, where do we find these giant bones that some of us think are dinosaurs? Well, upper strata. I said, well, let me just clear this up for you, what the Bible says. You see, there were volcanic eruptions in the oceanic caverns causing great volumes like a tsunami over the surface of the earth. Well, human beings and large animals who can run fast are fleeing to higher ground. And what happens when the water recedes, we have immediate sedimentation and stratification of the earth's surface. And he answered with a very hostile attitude and said, well, how long did that go on? I said, I'm glad you asked. The Bible tells you. It does? Yeah. It went on for five months. Five months? Do you know what that would do? I said, yes, sir, I do. It would cause tremendous stratification of the earth's surface. In other words, it was caused by catastrophe and not millions of evolutionary thinking years. 1,000 students stood up and cheered. And I got in the microphone and I said, I don't need your cheers to make it right. It's right because of the Bible. One guy stood up and he said, hey, I believe it, man. He said, that's really good. He said, uh, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. I said, no, sir, that's heresy. What? I said, it's heresy. 
That's incorrect theology. Christians say it all the time. It's wrong. Well, what's right? God said it. That settles it, whether I believe it or not. You understand? We got a problem here. And now we got all these Christian preachers telling us life was normal just going on. No, it wasn't. We had a population explosion. It's very possible that we're going to get right at that lower number before the year's up. Wow. What about moral deterioration? Mm-mm. Do we have a morality problem here? Genesis 6-2. The sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair. On a scale of 1 to 2, the word fair in English means about a 2. Not in Hebrew. It's talking about beautiful and gorgeous. The next statement is very important. You read it carefully. And they took them wives of all which they chose. This sentence is a word of violence. It is not saying they saw some single gals and they romanced them and then they got married and all of that as one preacher and radio continued to say. No, it's exactly the opposite. The word took is a word of violence. They didn't choose just women in general. They chose women who were already married. So we got adultery here, abuse of the worst kind. They were having immorality. How do you know that? Well, verse 5 says, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Verse 11 and 12, the earth was corrupt before God. The earth was filled with violence. God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. In Jesus' remarks in Matthew 24, verse 12, he said, Because iniquity shall abound, the love of many, literally in Greek, the many, meaning the majority, will wax cold. Is there a complacency and indifference in the body of Christ today over the immorality in our country? We got pastors that will not preach on it at all. They're scared to death of the subject. Uh, Jim and Beth, do we have that uh, morality book back there? It is there. Okay. I wrote a book called Whatever Happened to Morality. I sent copies to all the Fox News people, believing they're pretty conservative. Some good Catholic people there. And I wrote Brett Baer, Brett Hume, Shepard Smith, Bill O'Reilly, Sean Hannity, Greta Van Susteren, and gave a few extra copies for the program people. It was a month before I heard from them. Program lady called me, my home. And she said, that was an amazing book you read, you wrote. I said, you read it all? She said, I sure did. He said, it's a wonder they don't lock you up. She said, did anybody tell you that you're kind of in your face? I said, you must not have listened to me on the radio. You would know the answer to that question. But I knew then that they weren't going to interview me in that book. 
She said, it's a marvelous book. It's probably the most outstanding book on morality I've ever read. But she said, did you have to put so much Bible into it? And you know, to this day, I say to a lot of believers, we don't worship at the feet of Fox News. We worship at the feet of the Lord God of the Bible and His Word. And the compromise that's going on among churches is right in that category. We're afraid to say what needs to be said. We have the pastor of the largest church in California telling people that we should not speak against the moral issues of our day because it's simply unbelievers doing what comes naturally. Now, I know what he said, and I understand it. But at the same time, the Bible says that judgment must begin at the house of God. When Jesus referred to all these moral issues, he applied it to his disciples. The fact is, when Israel got that message, the night Solomon finished dedicating the temple, God woke him up and said, oh, one more thing. If my people, who are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin and will heal their land. I keep praying for a lot of unbelievers in high places, but I also know that according to the Bible, it starts with those who claim to be believers. We need to get right with God. The immorality is huge in our midst. Many pastors have told me, I can't preach on it or they'll get another person as a pastor. Well, let them get another person as a pastor. Don't sell your soul. Don't compromise with the word of God. And widespread violence, verse 11, the earth was filled with violence. Look what's happening now, all over the world. God said unto Noah, verse 13, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence. This is not life normal. And behold, I'll destroy them with the earth. But here's the serious problem. The fourth one is demonic infiltration. Wow. Who are these sons of God? Take your Bibles, please, and turn to 2 Peter chapter 2 in the New Testament. 2 Peter chapter 2. And look at verse 4 and 5. There are three reasons why liberal preachers cannot stand 2 Peter. Chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. In chapter 2, look at verse 4 and 5. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, the word in Greek, Tartarus. In old Greek mythology, Tartarus was the abode of the demons. Delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved into judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly. Go over, please, to the book of Jude, one chapter right before Revelation, and look at verse 6 and 7. Folks, the Bible teaches they were angels that sinned. 
In the Old Testament, the term sons of God refers to angels. In the New Testament, it refers to believers. The angels are either evil or they are good. The evil angels are now dominated by the angel of the bottomless pit, the anointed cherub, who because of pride fell into condemnation, Satan himself. You got your Bible open? Jude 6 and and 7. And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, He hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness, under the judgment of the great day, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner. That adverbial statement means exactly the same thing. What did they do? Giving themselves over to fornication. Sexual sin. But look at the next statement. And going after strange flesh. There are two words for other or another or strange. You have the word heteros. And you have the word alos. When it says another of the same kind. Wow. Same kind as what? Sodom and Gomorrah. Now watch out. Giving themselves over to sexual sin, going after heteros. Strange flesh. Are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. What do we have here? We have a clear passage in 2 Peter 2 and Jude 1. We have a clear passage telling us that the sons of God of Genesis 6 are fallen angels, angels that sinned. And their sin was what? Going after strange, heteros, very different flesh. Why? Because they are spirits. Angels are spirits. Can they inhabit the bodies of human beings? You bet they can. The Bible warns us in 2 Corinthians 11 that the devil has a way of sending these fallen angels, spirits, into the bodies of people who are preachers and ministers of righteousness in order to deceive the people in church. How would you know? The Bible tells you how you would know also by what they say that doesn't match to what the teaching of the Bible is. Wow. You know what else is illustrated here? Number four. What's illustrated here is the principle of faith. Noah entered the ark. There it is. How would you feel? Been mocked 120 years, you and your sons building this gigantic boat. Dad, what are we doing this for? Well, there's going to be a flood. What's a flood? Well, um, there's just going to be water everywhere and we're going to be in the boat. We got to get in a boat and there's going to be water all over the place. Dad, what have you been eating lately? You can imagine what these boys thought. But the Bible says that Noah walked with God. That was the key right there. He was going to listen to God. 
Hebrews 11.7 By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world. And he became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. Amen? You say, oh boy, that's a great message. Thank you very much. Oh, I'm not done yet. Not even close. Let's move to another big area. The interpretation of those who are taken and those who are left in verse 40 and 41. Now we have a little problem here. Two will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at a mill. One will be taken, the other left. So let's start with this. Understanding the people who are involved. Put it up there. Understand the people who are involved. Who are they? First, there are flood victims. The flood victims are all non-believers who did not know. That's what the Bible says. They knew not until the flood came. Number two, we have Noah and his family, which would have to represent tribulation believers who know the day. Wow. And then we have the disciples of Yeshua, who are church-age believers, who clearly in the passage do not know the day. Is this common? Yes, it is. You see, parables are both comparison and contrast. An unjust judge represents a truth that God wants us to know. Parable of contrast. There are a lot of them in the Proverbs as well. In Genesis 7-4, it says, Yet seven days, and I'll cause it to rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living substance that I have made will I destroy off the face of the earth. In Genesis 7, 10 to 13, it came to pass after seven days, the waters of the flood were upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up, and the windows of heaven were open. The rain was upon the earth forty days and forty nights. In the selfsame day entered Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and their wives into the ark. And the disciples of Yeshua, they're church-age believers and they don't know the day. Wow. Let's take a look at the usage of words. In verse 39 it says, The flood came and took them all away. Well, they all died, right? They were destroyed in the flood. Every last one of them. The Greek word is ireo also used in Luke 17, 27, it is a word of judgment, not of blessing. And rightly so. The flood took them all away. They were all destroyed. But when we come to verse 40 and 41, about two in the same bed, one shall be taken and the other left. Wow. The Greek word is paralambano. Paralambano is a word of comfort. It was used in John 14, verse 3. When our Lord told us, In my Father's house are many mansions, if it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, listen to this, and receive you unto myself. Paralambano. To receive alongside of. I have men who tell me, well, these are just interchangeable words. That's what they say. Put it up there. The big question. 
Are these words interchangeable? Or is there grammatical significance to their differences? Wow. What do we believe? Is it one taken in judgment and the other left to go into the millennium? Or is it one taken into the ark as Noah and his family and the other left to experience the judgment of the tribulation, namely the flood? Interesting question, isn't it? I'm going to let you all go home and worry about it all night long. But I do tell you this, put it up there. There's an imperative here for the disciples. Once again, as I hear people teach this, they fail to mention the change in pronouns. All of a sudden, Jesus changes and uses the second person plural. Ye. It's no longer them. It's ye. And he says, watch therefore for you. Plural. Know not what hour your Lord doth come. But know that, by the way, the parallel in the illustration would have to be you don't know when the flood's coming. Which is exactly the opposite of the teaching that this is referring to the coming of the Lord at the end of the tribulation. Can't be in this passage. Know this, if the goodman of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore be ye, plural, also ready, for in such an hour as you think not the Son of Man cometh. You see what the requirement is? Watch. Put it up there. Watch. And be ready. It's even more powerful in Luke 21. He warns us about the kind of lifestyle we could be involved in and not understand our time and not understand the Lord's going to come. When you see these things happen, then you know that it is coming. Wow! Are there things that happen before the tribulation begins that maybe pre-trib believers might have to experience and endure? When Jesus said, all these are the beginning of birth pangs. He didn't say the baby's out. No, the baby hadn't come out yet and it's a tribulation. Are there things that you and I, if we are pre-trib believers, might experience before that day starts? And the answer is absolutely. In fact, that's what Jesus intimates. He's warning his church-age disciples Watch and be ready because you don't know the hour when the Son of Man cometh. And, put it up here, number two, the reason is you don't know. You're like the flood victims, aren't you? All of us are like the flood victims who did not know. And church-age disciples of Yeshua do not know when it's going to happen. By the way, tribulation believers will know. They can count the days. This is a very difficult passage. And I wanted you to have something to argue about on the way home. 
that we will get a hunger and a thirst to know the truth about Bible prophecy because we can be set free. Amen? Amen. So get a good night's sleep. You don't have any idea what you're going to face tomorrow morning. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you and praise you for this opening of our conference and the privilege of taking a look seriously at these great prophecies. Whether we're right or wrong, we know the message is very clear. Watch and be ready. We know the word watch is talking about our lifestyle. You told us to watch and be sober because the devil, like a roaring lion, is walking around seeking whom he may devour. And we're to resist him steadfast in the faith. Lord, I don't know the hearts of the people here, but you do. You know how many people came into this meeting and are unsure, really unsure, of their relationship to our blessed Lord Jesus. There is no other Savior He's the only one that can free us from sin, death, and hell. And there's a lot of us that have gotten involved with things that do not please you. The world, its system of thinking and what they do and think is enjoyable. It's so easy to go along and never stand up for what's right. God, I pray that you'd work on our hearts as only your spirit can do. As I interrupt my prayer for a moment, please don't look around. Just provide the privacy everybody needs. I'll not embarrass you or call on your name. But right where you are, I want to give you the opportunity to get right with the Lord. Watch and be ready. And if you're here and you're not sure, or there are things in your life that you're dealing with that are really drawing you away, Right now, just lift your hand up to the Lord and say, God, please help me. Yes, God bless you. Yes, you way in the back. Yes, over here. Yes, and over here, many of you. Listen, God loves you. You got to come clean. You got to confess and repent. That's not easy to do. It's not just feeling sorry that you were caught or exposed. It means what's wrong in your life has got, you got to say no and say no now. Yes, sir. God bless you. Yes, way in the back. God bless you. Yes, and over there. God bless you. Father, you see the hearts as well as the hands. Lord, I pray by your Holy Spirit, you'd get a hold of us. And this might be the new day where we start fresh with you. Thank you, Lord, for your forgiveness and your faithfulness to us. In the blessed name of our Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.